So I showed it to the doctor, and well, she said it's smashing. In this episode of the Smashing Podcast, we're asking if changes to best practices over the last year have negatively impacted the web. Is it all downhill from here? We talked to expert Chris Ferdinandi to find out. But first, did you know that Smashing Magazine publishes brand new articles to the website throughout your working week? There's a lot to keep up with, but we're here to help. It's your weekly update. In Next.js wildcard subdomains, Sam Poder notes that hosting with a wildcard subdomain enables your users to visit your site on any subdomain of your domain. And as you can imagine, this can be used to create unique user experiences. In this article, Sam explores what that can mean, all through a Next.js lens. Dan Shapir has a case study in improving the performance of Wix websites. Implementing a performance culture within your organization is very important. In this article, Dan shares which actions and processes the Wix team put in place in order to achieve dramatic improvements in the performance of websites built and hosted on their platform. In adding a dyslexia-friendly mode to a website, John C. Barstow notes that with a little CSS, we can adapt our web designs to be more accommodating for people with dyslexia. John explores those techniques by adding a dyslexia-friendly mode to an existing design. Namalia Ghosh looks at how to maintain a large Next.js application and discusses some of the complex problems that he faced while building and maintaining large Next.js applications, along with giving pointers as to how these problems can be solved using the various tools at our disposal. Jay Tompkins brings us the excitingly titled 3D CSS Flippy Snaps with React and Greensock. One of Jay's main mantras is to make learning fun. In this article, he shows you ways to level up your skills by bringing your ideas to life and not forgetting that you can be playful with code. With that mindset, every idea is bound to become an opportunity to try something new. And that is your weekly update. Find all these and more at smashingmagazine.com slash articles. He's the author of the Vanilla JavaScript Pocket Guide series, creator of the Vanilla JavaScript Academy training program, and host of the Vanilla JavaScript podcast. We last talked to him in July 2020, where we asked if modern best practices are bad for the web. So we know he's still an expert in Vanilla JS. But did you know he's solely responsible for New Zealand being missing from 50% of world maps? My smashing friends, please welcome back Chris Ferdinandi. Hi, Chris. How are you? Oh, I'm smashing. Thanks for having me, Drew. Um, interesting thing. I actually make sure New Zealand is not on maps because it's probably my favorite country in the whole world, and I don't want too many people to know about it. <laughs> you want it to remain unspoiled. Indeed. <laughs> um, so welcome back to the podcast. Uh, last time we talked, we sort of posed this question of if you know modern best practices the use of like reactive frameworks and and these sorts of things were actually bad for the for the progress of the web um and i don't know whether it was a, a sort of controversial um episode or it just struck a chord with a lot of listeners but that conversation has been one of the most shared and listened to episodes that we've we've put out at, uh, at smashing oh, that's awesome. um 
it's actually been more than a, a year now, sort of 15 months since we recorded that, which at the pace the web moves is like literally forever. Um, so I wanted to ask, ha- has anything changed? Is the web still in a terminal decline? Has the needle <laughs> shifted at all? Yeah, quite a bit. Quite a bit has changed. Quite a bit has not. Um, so I think um, it's so weird. Like the web technology changes so fast, but the web itself tends to move a little bit slower just in terms of like developer trends and habits. And so you see these slightly longer arcs um, where you'll have a bunch of a bunch of technology pile up around one approach and then it'll slowly start to swing the other way and then change all at once. Um, and uh, so um, last time we talked, I think one of the big kind of, well, I had two big points related to the modern web. The first was we're using a lot of tools that give developers convenience, um, but we're using those tools at the expense of the user. So we're throwing a ton of client side JS at people, and that introduces a ton of fragility and performance issues. Um, the other big point that I was really kind of hammering on was that these tools don't necessarily improve the developer experience as much as I think people think they do. Um, they do for some people. And I think for another segment of the front end, professionals, it actually can make things a little bit worse. Um, but what I'm starting to see happen now, and um, you know, one of the things I'd love to kind of dig into a little bit more, um, is I think we're seeing a new, it's almost like a second generation of tools that take a lot of the developer benefits that these client-side frameworks bring and strip away the kind of the punishing effects that we put on our users as a result. Um, so it's taking those same concepts and tools and packaging them a little bit differently in a way that's actually better for the for the front end. So one of the things I've been talking about with people lately is this idea that modern development has broken the web, but it's also starting to fix it. Um, and so we can definitely dig into that in a bunch of different angles, depending on where you want to take this conversation. Sure. What sort of things have have you seen in the last year that really stand out from from that point of view? Yeah. So the two biggest trends I've noticed are the rise of um, micro frameworks. Um, so where we saw a lot of really big, all-encompassing libraries for a while, um, React, Vue, before that Angular, which is just a massive beast at this point, um, we've started to see smaller libraries that do the same thing kind of come into their own. Um, so for example, um, the, I think kind of the, the king of this hill is probably Preact, um, which is a three kilobyte alternative to React that uses the same API ships way less code and actually runs orders of magnitude faster on state updates than React does too. Um, uh, you know, so you've got, you've got things like that. Um, for a while you had, um, well, it's still out there, but Alpine JS, uh, which was inspired by Vue.js and then actually inspired Evan Yu who built Vue to release Petite Vue, which is a 5.5 kilobyte subset of Vue that's optimized around progressive enhancement. So um, these are still client-side libraries, but the intent behind them is that they ship less code, uh, include fewer abstractions, and ultimately kind of work faster and put less of that cost on the front-end user. Um, so that's been one kind of angle. And then the second trend I've seen that I think is personally more compelling is a shift from libraries to compilers. Um, and so the one that kind of kicked this whole trend off was Svelte by Rich Harris, uh, which takes the idea of state-based reactivity, but instead of 
having this be a thing that runs in real time in the client, you author your code with the same kind of general pattern that you might with React or Vue. Um, and then you run a build tool that compiles all that into plain old HTML and vanilla JavaScript, and that's what gets shipped to the browser. And so you've stripped out almost all of the abstractions in the client, and you you deliver something that's way closer to what you might handwrite with old school DOM manipulation, but with the developer convenience of state-based UI. Um, so that was really interesting. Uh, more recently, there's a new tool called Astro that builds on what Ridge did with Svelte and also allows you to pull in components from your favorite libraries. So you can mix and match Vue, React, Svelte, vanilla JavaScript, all in one kind of package, compile it all out into vanilla JavaScript and ship orders of magnitude less code without the abstractions. And so it runs way faster in the browser as well. Um, and those are, I think for me, really the two kind of big things. They're like standing on the shoulders of giants and um, producing a front end that um, will hopefully start to be a little bit faster. Um, the compilers in particular are interesting because they take us away from rendering HTML in the browser as much as possible. Um, you, you still render your HTML or you still author it with JavaScript if you want. Um, but the outputted result is more static HTML and less JavaScript, which is always a good thing. Yeah, do, and do you think this is a, a sort of um, the ecosystem's response to this sort of quiet developer dissatisfaction about the weight of modern frameworks? Is it just a natural um, sort of heave and hoe? Yeah, um, it is. Although, to be honest, I'm not entirely sure how much of this was driven by... Um, well, yes, there are some definitely some performance-minded developers out there who have been very vocal about how these tools are bad for the user. Um, I don't know that that's necessarily representative of the general population, though. Um, I mean, certainly a subset of it, given how, um, you know, how the last time we talked that episode did. But um, I think one of the things that none of these tools for me get at um, is... Or the thing that I'm most bothered by, by the modern web, that I don't think these tools address, is that I personally feel like just the development process in general is overcomplicated. Um, this is where I get into the whole, like, I don't think the developer experience is actually better with these tools. But I think for a lot of developers in maybe a team environment, it can be. Um, for me as a largely solo developer, um, I find I find these tools more trouble than they're worth. But um, I know a lot of folks disagree with me there, so I don't want to. I don't want to kind of dismiss that as invalid. It's certainly you know if you find these tools useful, great. Um, but uh, yeah, I think this is maybe a natural pendulum swing back in the other direction. Um, the third thing that I didn't talk about that your question actually makes me think about though is um, there is almost kind of a natural cycle in the web where you start to throw a lot of JavaScript at solving solving problems as the web and the capabilities of it grow. And eventually those kind of JavaScript libraries get absorbed by the platform itself, but it's a much slower process than creating a new JavaScript library is because of, you know, standard processes and how important those are. Um, so we saw the same thing kind of happen with jQuery, right? Where <laughs> the amount of JavaScript being used on the web swelled with jQuery and jQuery plugins. And then eventually the web platform realized that these ways of doing things are really smart and we started to get native ways to do it. And then there was this really long, slow petering off of, um, you know, the shift away from, 
from jQuery. And so I think these libraries, as much as they've they've done a lot of, um, I'll be a little controversial here and say they've done a lot of damage to the web. Um, they've also served an important function in paving cow paths for what native APIs could look like and could do. So I don't want to completely kind of dismiss them as terrible. It's interesting that you you mentioned uh, Astro uh, just a, a little bit earlier. I've actually recorded uh, an interview with uh, Matthew Phillips. I'm not sure if it goes out before or after this one. Uh, he's one of the core core developers on Astro, and it certainly is a very um, creative and an interesting approach uh, to the problem. I do wonder, as you as you're saying, how much this is. Um, we've created a set of problems for ourselves. And so now we've created a, a new solution which sort of patches over those problems and gives us something even better. But is it just, are we just stacking the bricks on top of each other and still ending up with a very wobbly tower um, because of it? Is it, Are we just going down the wrong path? It depends. Um, so I, as the hair on my head has started to disappear and my beard has gotten whiter, I've started to talk in fewer absolutes than I did. Um, and so five years ago, I would have said absolutely yes. Um, I, I don't want to diminish the value of kind of these tools in a, in a team environment. And the other thing I honestly think a lot of libraries really have the potential to at least patch fix in the interim is um, accessibility problems with the web around complex UI components. Um, so um, in short, if I were to give this just like a one sentence, yes, I do think in, in many ways we're creating a really delicate house of cards that collapses very easily. And I think one of the nicest things about using mostly or almost entirely platform native to build for the web, so just authoring in HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, is you cannot touch that code for five years and come back to it. And you don't have any dependencies to update. You don't have any like build tools to run to start working with it again. It's just, it just works. And that's really great. Um, but though, the, I think the, the thing I see with libraries is a lot of them kind of come into creation to fill gaps in what the platform can do. And what I've noticed happens is after the platform catches up, the libraries stick around for a really long time. Um, and so the thing I always try to do is be a little bit deliberate about what I add to the things I build because it's really easy to add stuff and really hard to take it away once it's there. Um, and, uh, you know, just, I think, to ground these heady abstract concepts I'm talking about uh, for a sec, um, Every year, WebAIM, a web accessibility consultancy firm, does a survey of the top million sites on the web, and they run an audit, uh, just an automated audit, so they're not doing a detailed like inspection of all these sites. So just stuff that, you know, simple like robot tasks and pick up. And um, historically, one of the things they've always found is that sites that use UI rendering libraries have more accessibility issues than sites that don't. This year, they found the same trend with one exception. Sites that use React actually have fewer accessibility issues than sites that don't. And that is a notable trend from the year, or noticeable departure rather, from the year before um, when React sites had more accessibility issues. Um, I noticed a lot of focus on accessibility in the React community over the last year, building more accessible components, um, uh, accessible routing, um, things of that nature. And for complex components, things like 
tabs and disclosure widgets and um, you know sliders and things like that. It is really hard to do those accessibly with just HTML and vanilla JavaScript. Um, trying to keep track of which ARIA attributes you need to add on which elements and how to change them based on different behaviors and how to shift focus and announce different things is really complex. And I think these libraries, as much as they can be a very delicate house of cards, um, I, I see a huge potential there to fill these gaps. Um, where I'd ultimately love to end up, though, is in a place where the platform, the web browsers, offer native components that do those things so that you don't need the libraries. Um, and I think the details and summary elements provide a really nice kind of model for what that could look like. Um, so if you're listening to this and you don't know what those are, um, the details element is an HTML element that you wrap around some content and then inside it, you nest a summary element with like a, a little description of what's in that content. And by default, this element will be a collapsed bit of content. And when you click on the stuff in the summary, it expands. And then when you click it again, it collapses and it shows a little arrow when it's open or closed to kind of indicate what's happening here. Um, it's accessible out of the box. Um, if the browser doesn't support it, it shows all the content by default. So it's just automatically progressively enhanced. You don't need to do anything special there. Uh, it can be styled with CSS. You can even change what the icons that display when it's expanded and collapsed are just with CSS. You don't need to write any JS for it. But if you wanted to extend the behavior in some way, you can because it also exposes a JavaScript event that fires whenever it's toggled open or closed. Um, and I would love to see more stuff like that for tabs, for um, you know, image sliders or carousels or photo galleries. Um, we just we have so many different interactive components now on the web um, that may or may not always be appropriate, but they're in the designs and people are building them. And having a way to do those things where you didn't have to kind of fumble through how to make them accessible or lean on a 30 kilobyte library would be awesome. And so for me, that's, I think, the next evolution of the web. That's where I really want to see things start to go. Um, and I think that's the big need that these libraries address today. Um, in addition to some other stuff like changing the UI based on state changes and, um, uh, you know, interesting kind of use cases like that. Yeah. Modern browsers are just so capable, um, now and they automatically update themselves. Um, and they include many of the features natively that we've previously relied on, on sort of big frameworks and build tools, uh, for is the requirement of a, a build process to deploy a project a red flag in 2021? Um, you know, should should HTML and CSS and JS just be deployable as is? So, I, technically they are. Um, I don't think for most build processes that's real, or for most, like, kind of apps or sites or companies that's necessarily realistic today. I don't know that I'd call it a red flag. Um, as much as a resigned, I wish it wasn't like this, but I understand why it is for me. Um, like even for myself, um, you know, my site has several thousand pages on it now. I think I'm up to like three or 4,000 pages and there's no way I am just hand coding all those. Um, I think like I use a static site generator and I think tools like that can be really great. Um, I think, um, you know, there is, there's some challenge there in that 
you know, they become things that have to be kept updated and, and maintained. And so I like to keep mine as, as lean as possible. Um, but I think build tools that put more of the kind of the runtime on you, the developer, and thus allow you to ship less to the browser are a good thing. Um, especially as kind of the things we build become more complex. So I don't know that I would necessarily say it's just by default, a red flag. I think a lot of it depends on how you're using it. Um, if you need to run a build to ship a one or two page like marketing site or brochure site, yeah, that's kind of a red flag. Um, but, um, you know, if you're building some complex applications and these allow you to author in a way that's more sensical for you and then ship less stuff to the browser, that's not a bad thing. Um, and that's why, you know, I find tools like um, uh, like Astro really, really interesting because there is still a build step there, but it's a build step. Uh, in the service of providing a better end user experience. Yes, it's shifting all that computation onto onto the server, into the, you know, to, to build time or pre pre deploy time, and and not on page request time. Yeah, and so for me, I almost kind of break build steps into um, like for me, the gold standard is if I can ship it without any build step at all, that's awesome. But even for myself, the vanilla JS guy, that's not how I do things. A hundred percent today, um, and so. I think kind of the next step up um, is um, compilers that, um, you know, compilers that reduce your code to as much HTML and plain old JavaScript as possible versus those that create even more JavaScript, you know, like the ones that take a bunch of little files and make an even bigger file. Um, so uh, more of the former, less of the latter, if possible, is is always a good thing, but not always possible. I think um, getting off the the dependency treadmill, uh, as it were, has got to be a big draw to a, a vanilla JavaScript approach. You know, not having a million dependencies uh, to be updating all the time. Um, but I guess one of the advantages to some of these bigger frameworks is that they sometimes dictate um, and sort of sometimes facilitate a uh, a uniform way of working, which is really important with larger teams. Is there a danger of a project going a bit off the rails without those standards and procedures in place that a framework um, uh, imposes? Yes. Yeah, I think that's fair. I used to downplay, I think, kind of the significance of this for a while. And um, I, I think that is valid. That is a fair um, benefit of these tools. Um, I think the maybe the small counter argument here um, is if you Google how to do X with React, you're going to get half a dozen different approaches to doing that thing. So there are conventions, but there's not necessarily hard and fast. Like if you don't do it this way, everything breaks kind of rules. Um, one of the appeals of these tools is that they have a lot of flexibility. Um, certainly they do kind of enforce more standard approaches though than just kind of greenfield browser native kind of things do. Um, and so I think there's maybe a bit of a balance. Um, you know, even if you don't have a strong kind of team lead who's driving internal code standards, I have seen even framework-based projects kind of go off the rails with hodgepodge approaches before. So it's not, um, you know, it's, it's not like these tools automatically give you that, but they definitely give you some guidelines, maybe some rails that kind of nudge you in the right direction. And I know some people need that. Um, if that is something you need, this is where I I really like 
I really like that we're seeing more of these smaller libraries that use the same conventions like Petite View or Preact um, and compilers that also like Svelte has some very rigid kind of um, rails around it, certainly more so than um, than you would see with Astro. And um, and, you know, so if you really need that, I think I think you have some options that don't punish users for that need as much as what we had been doing a few years ago. You probably didn't set out to build a website today that was purposely inaccessible to people with disabilities, but you may have if you're not testing for digital accessibility. Here at Smashing, we take accessibility very seriously, but we understand that it may be difficult to know where to begin. That's where our friends at DQ Systems come in. They've built a suite of Axe tools to help dev teams test for accessibility, and their free Axe DevTools browser extension is a great place for anyone to get started. Available on Chrome, Edge, and Firefox, and loved by thousands, you can find and fix accessibility bugs with ease without having any special knowledge. With a click of a button, your entire web page will be scanned, and within a matter of seconds, the extension will provide you with a list of issues that were found automatically. From there, you can view more info about each issue and learn how to fix it. There are also additional features and functionality that you can unlock in the extension by creating an account and starting a 14-day trial of Axe DevTools Pro. These features enable you to go even further with your testing with the addition of intelligent guided tests and much more, still without needing any expertise. To give the Axe DevTools browser extension a try, visit dq.com smashing to get started for free today. That's D-E-Q-U-E dot com slash smashing. Use the promo code smashing at checkout to get 20% off your pro subscription. Otherwise, after your trial, you'll automatically be downgraded and can continue to use the free features forever. We thank DQ, the trusted leader in web accessibility and the makers of Axe for sponsoring this podcast. It's uh, in in the work that I do. Uh, we use Vue, um, and the uh, the Vue single file components are a really sort of um, compelling case for this. In that we have engineers writing front end code who aren't necessarily front end specialists, but we say here's a here's a way to to create a skeleton single file component. Your template goes here, your JavaScript goes here, your CSS goes here. And just naturally, as a, a result of that, we end up with a very consistent code base, even though it's been created by a very diverse set of people. Um, and, you know, sort of conventions like that can really have a, a, a big benefit to, to teams who don't necess- aren't necessarily all headed in the same direction because the engineering department is so massive or whatever. Yeah, for sure. Where, um, where I think you sometimes get in a, trouble with that um and and i i agree i've absolutely like the you know kind of the ability to make a code base look consistent with a bunch of different people working on it is really really important because the people writing the code today are not necessarily going to be the ones maintaining it later and um you know that can get messy fast the flip side is um if you're someone who is not comfortable or like really well-versed in JavaScript, a lot of the modern tool set is really geared towards JavaScript. And there are a lot of people on teams who specialize primarily in HTML or CSS or accessibility. And for them, JavaScript is not a core competency, nor do I think it's fair to expect it to be. Um, And um, 
just like you don't expect all your JavaScript developers to be experts in CSS. Um, and so it can make their job a lot harder. And this is kind of, for me, always that like that give and take with these tools is they can do some really awesome things, but they can also gatekeep a lot of people out of the process. Um, and um, I feel like that balance is different from team to team. Um, but for me, one of the big arguments for leaning more on browser native stuff or ditching as many of those dependencies as possible is that you open up your development process to a lot of people who are not as JavaScript heavy. There's um, always this sort of undercurrent within the industry that suggests there's the the current way of doing things, you know, the latest, and there's the outdated ways. Um, and if you're not up to date with whatever the latest is, you're somehow not as good an engineer or, or whatever. Um, in your estimation, does taking a, a sort of vanilla JavaScript approach enable you to swim free of all that? Is is vanilla JS like an evergreen approach? that that stands stands apart from those techniques yeah yeah there's a there's a few threads um in what you just mentioned drew so one of them is um if you learn if you understand the the fundamentals of the web um i have found that it's a lot easier to kind of like a bee just kind of bounce from different technology to different technology um and understand it enough to like even if you don't use it look at it and be like okay i can see some benefits to this or not and evaluate whether it's the right choice um if you need to dive into a new technology based on client needs or shifting direction in the company you can um i think it's a lot harder to do that if you only know a library and you've only learned the web in the context of that library now the caveat here is i learned javascript in the context of jquery and then backed my way into vanilla JavaScript and then kind of moved on to a bunch of other things too. The more I think about how that process went for me though, I think I was able to do that as easily as I did in large part because by the time I made that jump, ES5 had come out and had taken a bunch of its conventions from jQuery. And so there was a lot of these real like one for one map, mental map things I could do. I don't know if we're quite there yet with some of the state-based UI libraries, but we're definitely headed in that direction. And I think that's great. Um, but the other thing here, um, there is this real pressure, as you mentioned, in the industry to kind of always keep up to date with all these new technologies, um, in large part because people who develop these technologies and people who work at like the big companies are the ones who get invited to speak at conferences and talk about all the cool things they've built. But the reality is, that a lot of our web, like I'd say a majority of our web, runs on boring old technology that hasn't been updated in a while or has been updated, but in just a patch fix kind of kind of process. Um, uh, a lot of really important applications run on Python or PHP or, um, you know, uh, as a backend with just some sprinkling of lightweight HTML, CSS, and JavaScript on top. jQuery is still used on a lot of important stuff um with you know to the exclusion of other libraries um and it doesn't always feel like it because i feel like most job descriptions that you see um talk about wanting experience in react or view or something these days um but my experience from working in bigger technology companies or like older product companies is that a lot of there are a lot of jobs to be found working on old stable technology and um a lot of times they're not always the most um like it's not always the most exciting work, but 
a lot of times they are jobs that pay well and have really great hours and a lot of work-life balance in a way that you won't get in like a really exciting tech company working on the latest stuff. And so there's, you know, there's kind of trade-offs there. It's not always a bad thing. Um, yeah, I think um, it's one of those like the the new, new, new thing is potentially a very vocal minority of the web that's not representative of kind of the web as a whole. And there, there seems to be a, um, along with this uh, idea that you should be adopting everything new and immediately casting away everything that you've been using for the last 12 <laughs> months, there's also this idea that you should be engineering things at a, a sort of enterprise sort of grade um, of engineering, you know, but you ought to be doing every small project the way that an enormous company with 400 engineers is is building things. Um, and those two ideas actually aren't compatible at all because it's the big companies with with all these hundreds of engineers who are using, you know, the old crusty technology because it's reliable and they've got far too much momentum to to be dropping it and picking up something new. Um, so those those two ideas are, are, are sort of in direct conflict, I think. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of funny. Um, you always see the whole like, well, will it scale? Will it scale? Kind mm. of thing all the time. And um, does it need to? Like, are you are you building things for a Facebook sized audience? I'm sure you'll get there. At, well, I'm sure you'll get there. But it would be wonderful if you got there at some point. But like, if you're not there today, maybe that's not necessarily how you need to start out like those aren't your needs today you're pre-engineering for a problem that you don't have um to the detriment of some problems that you do um uh the other i think the other thing here is there's kind of this presumption that because facebook or google or twitter do thing it's a good idea or it's a good idea for everybody um and that's not not necessarily the case like there are a lot of um you know, those companies do a lot of things right, but they also do a lot of things poorly. Um, and they do them that way because of engineering trade-offs they've had to make because of how their teams are structured or very specific internal problems they had at the time that they made this decision. Um, or because some executive somewhere felt really strongly about something and made the internal team do it, even though it wasn't necessarily like best at the time. And then these things kind of stick around. Um, and so, yeah, I think... Um, I think one of the biggest things I see happen in our industry to our own detriment is looking at those few really big visible technology companies and thinking if they do it this way, I have to too, or that's the right call for everybody. It's kind of that old, like no one got fired for hiring IBM kind of, kind of thing, you know? Um, but applied to if it's good enough for Google or if it's good enough for Twitter or whatever. Um, you know, so yeah, I, um, I agree. I think I think we do a lot of that, and we maybe shouldn't. I uh, I asked on on Twitter uh, earlier on uh, what frustrated people about sort of modern uh, web development best practices, and, and from the responses I got, there's certainly a lot of dissatisfaction with with the current state of things. Um, one one sort of trend which over the last few years is is gaining momentum is like the the Jamstack approach to to building sites, and it seems on the surface that this you know going back to just client side um apps and and no, nothing complex on the server it's it, it sounds like it's um sort of going back to basics but is it doing that is it or is it just sort of masking the complexity of the stack in a in a different way it depends um i will i'm i'm a little biased here because i love i love the jamstack 
personally. But um, I have also seen, uh, well, I shouldn't say I have seen. I think what I'm trying to say here is the Jamstack is a term that can apply to a wide range of approaches up to and including a really large two megabyte of JavaScript single page app, you know, that has no kind of server side rendering on one end. And then on the other end, flat HTML files that use absolutely no JavaScript at all and instantly load in your browser um, and just happen to be shipped from like a CDN or something like that. Um, and, um, you know, like technically speaking, both of those are Jamstack. Um, and are not, you know, the, the flat HTML thing. Um, so Jamstack is not inherently better than server rendered, but in many cases it can be. Um, so for those of you who don't know, Jamstack used to be an acronym that stood for JavaScript APIs and markup, and they've since changed the spelling and kind of changed the definition a little bit there. Um, and it really encompasses an approach to building the web that doesn't rely on server-side rendering. So anything you're serving, um, you know, you've already kind of compiled and put together and that's what ships in the browser. And if there's any other kind of processing or scripting that happens, that happens in the client. Um, doesn't have to, but often does. Um, and so uh, what I think is awesome about Jamstack, if done a certain way, is um, it can dramatically improve the performance of the things that you're building if you're not just shipping like a metric ton of JavaScript to the client and having all the stuff that you used to do on the server happen in the browser instead. Um, because the browser will always be less efficient at all that scripting than the server would be. But where this really comes to shine is so I'll use like WordPress as an example. I love WordPress. I built my career on WordPress. It's the reason why I was able to become a developer. But every time someone visits a WordPress site out of the box, it has to make a call to a database, grab some content, mash it into some templates, generate HTML, and ship that back to the browser. And there are some plugins you can use to kind of do some of that ahead of time. But um, it is a very slow process, especially on a shared, inexpensive web host. A Jamstack approach would be to have that HTML file already built, and you cut you don't cut the server out, but you cut all of that server processing completely out. So the HTML file already exists and gets shipped. And in an ideal world, you would even push that out to a bunch of CDNs so it sits as close to the person accessing it as possible. Um, and what that can do is take a, a load time from a couple of seconds on like an inexpensive host to like less than half a second because of how little computing time it takes to actually just request a file, get the file back, and load it, if it's mostly HTML. Um, and so, um, yeah, I really like rambling and long-winded response to your, your question, Drew. But I think, um, I think the answer is, if you're using it with something like a static site generator, it can be amazingly more performant than some of the other things we've done in the past. And it allows you to get that same kind of WordPress experience where I'm authoring content and I have some templates and I don't have to hard code HTML, but the performance is way better um, on one end. And then on the other end, um, you know, you could theoretically define a React app as Jamstack as well, and it can be really slow and buggy and terrible. Um, and so 
it depends. The other thing I'm seeing happen that's really, really um, kind of funny and interesting is um, we just keep reinventing PHP over and over and over again as an industry um, in various ways. So and we still um, have PHP as well. It's not gone anywhere. Right. And yet PHP still exists and still works great. Um, and so we've got, um, you know, like I remember when, um, when, when Next.js came out, um, you know, there was all these kind of, and here's all the things you can do with it. And I was like, oh, that's like PHP, but a decade later. Um, and then, you know, my friend Zach Leatherman, who built Eleventy, um, which is an amazing static site generator, has been experiencing or experimenting with some kind of compiling in real time on the server kind of stuff with Eleventy. So it's like, like just in time Jamstack. And he even jokes <laughs> that he's essentially recreated PHP in Node and JavaScript, like, <laughs> but it's like slightly different because there's like a serverless build that happens that then like Insta deploys it to a CDN and it's like a little weird. Um, so it's still a house of cards. You're just kind of shifting around where those, <laughs> where those cards <laughs> live and who's responsible for them. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Jamstack is cool. Jamstack is problematic. It's also not, it's awesome. It's um, potentially overused um it both as a term and a technology um yeah it's it's a whole lot of things and i love it um in the same way that i love php like it's great and it has problems and every kind of technology and approach is a series of trade-offs do you think we're going through some sort of um industrial revolution in in web development you know what used to be skilled painstaking work from individual artisans is now high volume high production factory output where you know all the all the machines have been brought in um you know the, the frameworks and the build tools and and yeah. uh, have, we, have we lost that sort of hand-rolled touch well i mean yes to an extent but we don't have to like um you know um i, I think as a I mean that analogy is appropriate in many ways because um a lot of the a lot of the ways we do things today um produce like I like to call them like front end pollution in like kind of the the over reliance on JavaScript, but also in the very literal sense. Like we have so many heavy kind of build processes now that they generate more actual literal pollution as well. Um but um like I think the counter argument here is with um you know like with a far i'll use farming right like you could go out and like hand mill your wheat with a um you know with like a uh a scyther i forget what you call those you know like the kind of the crescent shaped tool that you use to like Scythe, chop your wheat yeah. <laughs> or you could use a uh, an oxen drawn machine that will will pull that off or you can use a big tractor and um i think there's a clear argument that at some point like you know Factory farming is this big industrial complex that has lost a little bit of that, like close to the earth kind of touch. But I don't think I necessarily need my farmers to be like hand chopping their wheat. Like that is wildly inefficient for very little kind of benefit. And there's probably a balance there. And I feel the same thing with what we're doing here. Some of these tools allow us to do more artisan work faster and more efficiently. Um, and sometimes they just turn it into generating a bunch of garbage um, and churning it out as fast as possible. Um, and 
there's not necessarily a clear-cut delineation for where that crossover happens. I think it's a little fuzzy and gray and like a you-know-it-when-you-see-it kind of thing. Um, sometimes, not always. Um, but yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, the, uh, the commercialization of the web is both um, a really terrible thing and also a really great thing that has allowed folks like myself to have like a living working on the platform that I love full-time. That's awesome. Um, but it's also produced a lot of problems. And I think that's true for any technology. Um, you know, there's, there's good and bad that comes with all of it. Maybe sometimes we're just producing really fat pigs. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, I, um, I've, um, yeah, I've gotten a lot more like it depends as I've gotten older. Um, this stuff used to really, really upset me, um, from kind of like a purist standpoint and i still really hate the fact that we've forced our users to endure such a fragile and easily broken web um like the internet has gotten the web in general has gotten like four to five times faster in the last decade um and the average website has only gotten like 100 milliseconds faster in terms of load time because we just keep throwing more and more stuff at our users um and we could have a really fast resilient web right now if we wanted one but we don't um, and, you know, part of that is a natural trade-off for pushing the capabilities of the web, um, you know, further and further. And that's awesome. But um, I feel like sometimes we do things just just because it's shiny and new and not because it adds, like, real benefit to folks. Um, so I'd love to see a little bit more balance there. It's part of the problem that we're expecting the, the web to do too much. I mean for many years we had we didn't we didn't really have any any great alternatives so we enhanced and maybe sort of overstretched the the hypertext document system to behave like a a software application um and now we've all got sort of really powerful phones in our pockets running a range of network connected apps you know is that the appropriate outlook for this functionality that we're trying to build into websites should we just all be building apps for that case and leaving the document-based stuff to be on the web I actually, I would argue the other direction. Um, I, I think the bigger problem is, so maybe, uh, maybe there are certain things for which I, I even personally, I prefer like a native app over something in the web. Um, but I think having, having the web do more kind of frees you from, uh, excuse me, frees you from app um, ecosystems, um, and allows you as a team to build a thing and be able to reach more people with it, not have to download an app before you can access the thing you want. Like that's a really cool thing. Um, and I would argue that potentially the bigger problem is that browsers can't keep up with the pace of the things we want the web to do. And that's not a knock on kind of the people behind the standards processes. Like I would not want to go back to every browser just kind of does their own thing and, you know, like to hell with it. That was awful to develop for. <laughs> but really um, was, yeah. <laughs> we do have some of those similar kind of problems though, just based on how the standards process works. So like sometimes you'll see Google get frustrated because they have so much in-house development power, get frustrated with other kind of browsers that are part of that process, not wanting to go along with something or not moving fast enough. And so they just, you know, Leroy Jenkins it and just run off and go do whatever they want to do. 
Um, on the flip side, you sometimes see Apple moving very, very slow because they don't put as much investment into the web as they do other parts of kind of their business, um, which is uh, hopefully maybe starting to change a little bit with some of the more recent hires they've made. But, you know, um, I, I think one of the things you run into is is just, you know, the web tends to move a little slowly sometimes like technology moves fast, but the browsers themselves and the technologies they implement don't always keep up. Um, and so I, I don't know that, or I don't believe we demand too much of our browsers. Um, I just think you kind of, you get this natural ebb and flow where we demand a lot. We build a bunch of libraries to polyfill kind of the things that we want. And then when the browser eventually catches up, there's this really slow petering off as, um, you know, library usage for that particular stuff kind of drops off. Um, uh, yeah, but I don't know that I would say we demand too much of the web. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I actually, I, I, I love all the things the web can do. I think it's really, for me, it's what's so exciting about, about the web. Um, I think my my frustration is more just with how slow some of these technologies are to to come out, particularly on iOS devices. And I just I say this is someone who I I love my iPhone, um, but uh, you know, uh, progressive web apps continue to be kind of a, a like a, a second. Um, they just don't get as much priority as native apps do on that platform, um, which is disappointing. So, looking to the the future on on that note. Um, mm. What should we, as a development community, be working on to fix some of these issues? Where should we be placing our efforts? Yeah, so um, there are a few, I think there are a few different things. And I think, you know, some of the tools we've talked about, I don't think they'll ever necessarily go away. Um, they might change in form a little bit. Um, but um, so I already see some cool things kind of on the horizon. Um, one of the things people love about single page apps um, that we've never been able to do with I call them multi-page apps, but they're really just like plain old web pages. Um, is like the nice transitions that happen between kind of you know views where you might like fade in, fade out, or like something like that. Um, there's a native API in the works that's going to make that a lot easier. That's awesome. Um, there's also a native API in the works for HTML sanitization. So one of the big things that libraries do for you is they, when you're rendering HTML from third-party data, they they have some libraries baked in that will help reduce your risk of cross-site scripting attacks. Um, there's not really a good just native way to do that, um, but there's one in the works that will make that a lot easier. And even if you continue to use state-based libraries, that should allow them to strip a bunch of code out, and that would be an awesome thing. Um, one thing that the native web can't do yet that would be really cool um, is a way to handle DOM diffing so that um, if you want to build some HTML based on a JavaScript object and then update it as the object changes. It would be really cool if you didn't have to rely on a library for that um, and that there was maybe like a performant out-of-the-box way to do that in the browser. I think that would solve a lot of problems um, as well as more accessible interactive components. Like I absolutely love when HTML and CSS can replace something I used to need JavaScript for. Um, doesn't doesn't need to be as rigorously tested. Um, way more fault tolerant, less likely to break, more performant all around. It's just it's a net win. Um, and so I'd love to see 
more of those come to the platform. Um, so from a kind of a browser native kind of thing, there's that. And then the other big thing I think we're going to start to see more of is a shift away from client-side libraries and a shift to more pre-compiled stuff, whether that's static site generators, something like Astro that still uses JavaScript libraries, but pre-renders them instead of um, kind of making the browser do it. But those are the kind of, I think, the big things I'm seeing start to happen. And I think we're going to see more and more of. So you're saying maybe it's not all doom and gloom and perhaps we can fix this. <laughs> there's, there's a way out. No, I, yeah, I see us emerging from the dark ages slowly. Um, and what I think is going to happen is we're going to hit a point where, um, much like where today people are like, why does anybody still use React? I can imagine in seven to 10 years time, we're going to be like, why does anybody, I'm sorry, not React, jQuery. Why does anybody still use jQuery? We're going to see the same thing with like React and Vue. Like, why does anybody still start a project with those? And there's going to be some new libraries that are starting to emerge to solve a whole new set of problems that we haven't even dreamed up today. One uh, one comment from Twitter that I really identified with was from um, Amy Pellegrini, who said, every time I update something, everything gets broken. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I think we've all, we've all been there, haven't we? Yeah. I unfortunately don't think that will ever fully go away because even in the non-build tooled build tool build tool era of jQuery, like um where you used to just kind of load it with a script element, you would run into situations where, you know, different versions would be incompatible with each other. And so you'd drop a plugin into your site and it would be like, sorry, you're running jQuery 1.83 and this requires 1.89 or higher because it added this new, you know, and so there's always been some version of that. I think it's a lot more pronounced now um, because so much of it happens in the command line and spits out all these terrible errors that don't make sense. But um, yeah, that, that unfortunately, I don't think will ever go away. <laughs> I feel the pain though. That one, it's a big part of the reason why I try and use as few dependencies as possible. Me too, me too. So um, I've been learning all about uh, the Lean Web or learning more about the Lean Web um, than our last conversation. Um, what have you been learning about lately, Chris? Yeah, great question. So um, I have been um, I have been going deep on uh, service workers, um, uh, in part because I love their ability to both make the web faster. Even if you're not building like a progressive web app, they're just really, really cool. Um, the uh, one of the things I've absolutely loved them for though is they allow me to build a single page app like experience in terms of performance without all the complexity of having to handle JavaScript routing and stuff. So I can have a multi-page app, cache my API calls for a short period of time um, without having to like cache them in memory. Um, and so I've been able to do some really cool things with them. And then the other thing I've been learning a lot about lately is um, serverless, which allows me to get the benefits of having some server side code without having to actually manage a server, which is great. Um, uh, and so I kind of went really, really deep on those, um, put together a couple of courses on both of those topics um, as well. Um, but they have benefited me immensely in my own work, um, in particular service workers, which has been amazing. I'm obsessed with them. Recommend them for everybody. That's amazing. Um, and where can people find those courses that you put together on? Oh, uh, yeah. So if you go to vanillajsguides.com, um, you can um, you can dig into uh into into those and a whole bunch of other courses as well um amazing if if you dear listener would like to hear more from chris you can find his book on the web at leanweb.dev 
and his developer tips newsletter, which I believe now gets over 12,000 subscribers. Uh, yeah, it's every, up a little yeah. bit from the last time we chatted. Yeah, and that's at gomakethings.com. Uh, Chris is on Twitter at Chris Ferdinandi, and you can check out his podcast at vanillajspodcast.com or wherever you usually get your podcasts from. Thanks for joining us today, Chris. Do you have any parting words? No, that was um that was a really great summary, Drew. Thank you so much. You hit you hit all the key licks. So thanks so much for having me. This was great. This is smashing. And that was our podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And if you liked it, please share it with your friends. Find us on the web at smashingmagazine.com, on Twitter at smashingmag, smashing magazine on Facebook, or in the supermarket by the cat food. Thank you.